Um, my name is Grant, and I'm part of the team, and it's a joy to welcome you to Christchurch this morning. And to those who are online as well, if there is anybody, welcome. You're not forgotten, and we wish you were here with us in the flesh. It's nice that you could be with us online. Let's uh, pray and ask the Lord to help us this morning to understand his word. Father, we come to your living word, and we know that it's um, a word that can change our lives and that has changed many lives. And so we, we come now with an expectant heart and ask that you would please be the agent of change through your word and by your spirit. And we pray this for Jesus' sake. Amen. How many of you watched the Academy Awards last weekend? <laughs> Just one clip. Yeah, over and over again. That's right. Well, as you know, the internet is abuzz with uh, the spat between Chris Rock and Will Smith. On Tuesday, um, it reported there was a report that Will and Chris had been reconciled. Then on Thursday, that report, the report changed to say that in fact they had not been reconciled. And then yesterday, it was reported that apologies had been made, and I haven't stayed up to date this morning. Reconciliation is a big deal in our world. Whether you hear it spoken about in connection with feuding celebrities or marriages or industrial relations or geopolitical events like the Ukraine and Russia, reconciliation is a concept that is not unfamiliar to us or to our culture. The opposite of reconciliation is estrangement or alienation or antagonism or hostility. Those are words that could describe the opposite. <clears throat> the Bible's view is that if you do not know God, if you haven't come to faith in Christ, you are estranged from him. That is, not knowing God is not a state of neutrality. It is, in fact, a state of hostility. Either we are reconciled, or we are estranged. Those are the only two options for the human race. It's worth remembering that, if you believe the Bible, that that is the state of your loved ones, your friends, your family members who don't know God. They're not in a state of neutrality, they're in a state of hostility. And if you don't know God and you're here this morning, then you need to know that the same is true for you as well. You are estranged from God. And that's a serious situation to be in. Now, the last couple of weeks, if you've been following the sermon series Crossroad, we've looked at the concept of justification last week and the week before. We saw the wonderful truth that because of the death of the Lord Jesus Christ, God legally and justly declares us to be not guilty. Now, remember, if you were here last week, our sin is covered and our sin is not counted. Those are the two words that Paul used in Romans chapter 4. And so when you're thinking about justification, you meet God as a just and a gracious judge. But today we're going to think about reconciliation. The word comes five times in verses 18 to 21 of what was read for us this morning. It's a different way of looking at the cross. It's a different angle or aspect of the death of Jesus. And there is a slight change of tone. If justification is our legal standing before our judge in the court, then reconciliation 
is our personal relationship with our Father in the home. Change of word, and it's a a slight change of emphasis. Reconciliation is about being brought back into relationship with God and with others. If you like, reconciliation is a sequel to justification. It comes after justification. Only when we have been justified by faith are we reconciled to God. Reconciliation is perhaps more personal than justification, which is more forensic. And it's a picture of family. It's a relational word, the opposite of alienation. I guess... um, you could think of it like this. If you had to appear before a judge for a crime that you have committed, you want to appear before a just and a gracious judge, don't you? But what reconciliation does, it expands the metaphor. Now you are appearing before a just and a gracious judge who is also your father. That, that's a very different feel with the word justification. Paul uses other related terms in his writings, in, in Romans 5, he uses the word peace. In Galatians 4, he talks about adoption into the family. And in Ephesians 2, he talks about access to God. Those are all words that kind of fall under the heading of reconciliation, relational words. And so reconciliation, peace with God, adoption into his family, access to God, reveals a new relationship into which God has brought us as a result of the death of Jesus. And I want us to think about three things from this passage about reconciliation. And the first thing is, God is the author of reconciliation. You know, we um, often think of sin, and I guess the last two weeks we've spoken like this when it comes to justification. We think of sin only in terms of legal categories, law-breaking, unrighteousness, iniquity. But the notion of reconciliation adds a layer to our understanding of sin. Because reconciliation is about relationship, what we need to remember is that sin is more than breaking an objective standard. It is actually trampling on a relationship, the relationship between us and God. Sin is not merely breaking God's objective law, it's trampling on him as a person. Our sin is personal betrayal to God, and he takes it personally. I'm sure that there are people here this morning who have experienced personal betrayal, perhaps in marriage or in friendship or in some other relationship. And that pain that we feel when a marriage or a friendship ends in betrayal is how we have treated God. It's deeply personal. It's relational. It's not just an objective breaking of law. I got a traffic fine the other day. I I don't know how it happened. And uh, it came through in an email, very impersonal email, with a photograph of me driving the car doing 70 in a 60 zone. Still, my excuse is I don't actually know all the zones here because I'm still new to Stellenbosch. But, I, you know, I didn't feel, other than being grumpy about the fact that I owe somebody 200 bucks for speeding, I, didn't, I hadn't actually personally hurt anybody. I didn't feel like that. But when it comes to breaking God's law, it's different. We actually are 
personally betraying the God who gave us life and everything. You might remember this verse from Genesis chapter 6. He has a good description of God's view of sin. I hope it's on the screen behind me. So the Lord said, I will wipe mankind whom I have created from the face of the earth, men and animals and creatures that move along the ground and birds of the air, for I am grieved that I made them. That's God's view of, of sin. It's personal grief. It's personal betrayal when we sin against him. The Lord grieves our sin. It hurts him personally, and he takes it personally. It's a personal thing with God. And it's interesting how Paul describes sin in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. It's a, it's a fresh description of sin. I noticed it freshly this week in my preparation. Look at verse 15 which wasn't read for us. It's just the verse before verse 16 that was read for us. He died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves. Isn't that a good description of sin? Sin is living for yourself. That's what it is. Um, it really goes to the heart of betrayal, doesn't it? If you've been betrayed... It's because one party in the relationship is living for themselves and putting themselves before anything else, before any commitments or promises or relationship. They no longer want the relationship that the other party still wants because they are living for themselves. It's an excellent description of the world in which we live. On the cross, the betrayed God took steps to fix the broken relationship that hurt him personally. Look at verse 18. It says, all this is from God. He is the author of reconciliation. Look at verse 19. God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ. What an amazing thing that is. Here is God, the offended party, the one who has been betrayed, taking the initiative to bring about reconciliation. He would have been perfectly within his rights to sit back and wait for those who had done the betraying to approach him, but he doesn't wait. He takes the first step. Just as a sidebar, can I just make a comment about that to, if you're a Christian husband? You know, when the New Testament says husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church, I want you to think about reconciliation for a minute in your marriage. In your marriage, if you are the husband, you are the one that has to be like Christ to your wife. Interestingly, the wives are never told to be like Christ to their husbands. So I take it that if there is um, a breakdown of relationship in a Christian marriage, it is the husband's responsibility, even if he is the innocent party, to take the initiative to bring about reconciliation. For that is how Christ treated you. It's a profound thing, that, and it, it really requires us to put our pride in our pocket. It's really a wonderful demonstration of humility, isn't it? And so reconciliation to God does not come by human action or human initiative. It does not enlist human effort, nor is it dependent upon human activity. 
God is the author of reconciliation. He is the one who takes the initiative. Here's the second thing I want us to notice. Not only is God the author, but Christ is the agent of reconciliation. Look at verse 18 again. All this is from God who reconciled to him, us to himself through Christ. And again, verse 19. God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, through Christ, and in Christ. Now, what did God accomplish through and in Christ? I want to show you two things that you probably know if you've been in this church for any period of time. I want, you to show, I want to show you that Christ is our representative on the cross, and secondly, that Christ is our substitute on the cross. They're slightly different ideas. Look at verse 14. It says, For Christ's love compels us, because we are convinced that one died for all. That is a description of representation. One for all. Um, think with me, it's, it's a fairly common illustration to illustrate representation, but if, uh, a cricket, if there's a cricket match and they've got to work out who's, who's going to bowl and who's going to field, sorry, who's going to field and who's going to bat, the, the cricket captains come together for the toss. And in that moment, the cricket captain is the representative of the team. The team, if you like, are in the captain. And so as he tosses, he makes the decision on behalf of, inclusive of the team. That's what it means when it says that the one died for the many. In verse 14, one died for all, and therefore all died, says Paul. That's representation. That is, when Christ died and when he rose... It included us. He was our representative. It was representation. When Christ died and rose again as our representative, we who belonged to him were incorporated in that death and in that resurrection. We also died and rose again in him. We were included. That's what representation does. It includes. But secondly, there's substitution, not just representation, and that is in verse 21. A wonderful, clear statement about the great exchange that you've heard about before. Verse 21, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That is, if representation is incorporation or inclusion, then substitution is exchange. Slightly different, but wonderful concepts that result in reconciliation. That is, God made him to be sin who was sinless. We've heard this many times, haven't we? God takes Jesus, puts him in our place, and treats him the way we deserve to be treated. Wrath, judgment, and hell. And then he takes us, and he puts us in Jesus' place, and he treats us the way Jesus deserves to be treated. Acceptance, love, inclusion. He gives us righteousness. It's an amazing exchange. Jesus is our representative. Jesus is our substitute. 
And it results in three things. Have a look at these quickly with me. First of all, because Christ is our representative and our substitute, the old self, living for self, is now gone. Look at verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone, the new is here. No longer will we, will we go on living for ourselves, verse 15. We now live for Christ. We are new creatures. We are made new. We are given new hearts. Instead of living for our own desires and our own wants and our own way, we live for Christ. Instead of living self-centered lives, orbited around us and our needs and our desires, we live Christ-centered lives. I'm never again going to live the way the world lives. For I am a new creation. The old is gone. And so one of the great marks that you have been reconciled to Christ is self-forgetfulness and a willingness to be put out for the good of others and a willingness to live for Christ and not for self. He has the second effect, verse 19. How wonderful is this? That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And so we are given new hearts, firstly. And secondly, our sin is not counted, it's removed from us. And thirdly, verse 21, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of of God, We are given new righteousness as the sinless one takes our sin in himself. The sinful ones are given the righteousness of God in exchange. Do you see how that works? In the sin-bearing, substitutionary, representational death of Jesus, we are reconciled to God. We are given righteousness, which qualifies us for friendship and relationship with God. All that is necessary for reconciliation to take place has happened on the cross. Reconciliation is achieved in the past on the cross. Reconciliation does not need to be achieved by us and our activities. It just needs to be received by us. Achieved in the past, received in the present. Nothing for us to do. However, there is an aspect of the ministry of reconciliation that is not complete in this passage. And this leads me to my final heading. God is the author. Christ is the agent. We are the ambassadors of reconciliation. There is an ongoing ministry of reconciliation that we are called as Christians to participate in. You can see it in verse 20. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. Who are the we in verse 20? We are ambassadors of Christ. Well, obviously in the first place, it refers to Paul and the apostles. But I think we can take it to include all true believers just like in verse 18, Paul also uses the word uh, us in verse 18. He says, um, all this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ. He does mean 
himself and the apostles, but he means all Christians. And so in verse 20, the we can also means Paul and the apostles, but also means us. It refers to a bigger group than just the apostles. Since Christ is no longer physically present, Paul, and indeed all Christians, represent him and speak for him. In his death, he represented us. In his physical absence, we represent him. We are his ambassadors. One Christian writer says, it is a ministry not given to Christ or the angels. It's a ministry given to us. Now we need to think about the two great challenges that arise out of that. If we are the ambassadors of Christ, then first of all, your life matters, doesn't it? Let's take on board that this means that those to whom we represent Christ make their judgment about Christ by what they observe in us. That should give us pause for thought. Because then the way we behave matters. The way we relate matters. The way we speak matters. The places we go matter. For we are the ambassadors of Christ. And the world will learn about Christ in the first place by virtue of our behavior. And so your life matters. But secondly, your words matter. Let's feel the weight and the privilege of verse 20. God, did you notice what it says? It's very strongly written. God is making his appeal through us to the world. Every Christian ought to have this burning in their hearts. The ESV says, I implore you, be reconciled to God. Can you feel Paul's passion? I beg you, will you please be reconciled to God? The stakes are very, very high. And we have been given this ministry of reconciliation. That is our mission. That's the reason for your life. You're an ambassador for Christ if you are a Christian. Remember, you don't live for yourself anymore. Verse 15. You're no longer living for yourself. You're a new creation. You've got something new to live for now. And the thing that you are living for now is the reconciliation of the world to God through Christ. That's why we exist. That's why this church exists. We have been given the ministry of reconciliation. In our generation, in the present, the message will come from the apostles, the Bible, through us to those who are still estranged from God. So who are you inviting to the Easter weekend? Have you got somebody in mind that you're going to invite a non-Christian to bring them to hear the message of reconciliation on Good Friday or Easter Sunday? After the Easter weekend, I'm going to be running a six-week course called Discover Jesus, which is specifically designed for skeptics and inquirers. Is there somebody that you could come along with? You don't need the course, maybe, but there's somebody that you know who will come if you bring them. You don't live for yourself anymore. It doesn't matter. You can give up six Wednesday nights for the good of others, for the salvation of others. It'll be on our website before long, and you can sign up through there. 
Friends, the truth of reconciliation, as we've seen it this morning in this passage, has got embedded in it this great appeal, be reconciled to God. That is, be found no longer in a state of hostility towards God, but enter into the peace of God, into friendship with God. He says it again in chapter 6 and verse 1, which we haven't read. He says, now is the time of God's favor. Now is the day of salvation. Verse 1, as God's co-workers, we urge you not to receive God's grace in vain. Today is the day of salvation. And so I want to appeal to those who might be listening this morning who don't yet know God as a friend. The Bible's view is that you are alienated from God. Please will you be reconciled to him today. And the way to do it is to come to Jesus and ask him to be your representative and your substitute. Now will you bow with me as we pray. Father, thank you so much that you have done everything necessary to bring us near to you in friendship with you, to be reconciled to you. It's our prayer that you would please be at work in those who are perhaps here this morning who are not yet reconciled to you. Lord, would you be merciful to them and draw them into relationship with you. And we pray for those who are reconciled to you, Lord, that we would take seriously our ambassadorship in this world, the way that we live and the way that we speak, and that we would have hearts that burn for the great message, be reconciled to God. And we pray this for Jesus' sake. Amen. We're going to stand and sing our final hymn together and then...